0: And that's so interesting that you say that because I remember from my schooling days and and I'm not a internal medicine person. I'm totally a surgeon. And we'll talk about that part of the pancreas, too, uh, in a second. But uh, but I remember that in in the D word, it is so obvious when a D has pancreatic insufficiency, because what comes out is so pneumonic or whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, but in a cat, that's then not the case. That's really interesting. Sorry for saying, sorry. Media
1: presents the PER Podcast. The best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon
0: and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein.
2: And this is Dr. Susan Little. And I'm very excited because this episode of our podcast is really international. I think it might be the most international one we've had.
0: It is, and it is also directed by a question of a active listener who asks specifically for this topic. Yes. So what are we talking about, Dr. Susan?
2: So we're, we're going to talk mostly about pancreatic diseases in cats. And I am thrilled because we have Dr. Panos Sunulis with us today, who I've wanted to kind of talk to face-to-face even though it's virtual for a long time. So welcome to our podcast, Panos.
3: Thank you very much. It's very nice to be with you. And uh, it's always exciting to have the opportunity to talk about pancreatic disease in, in, in cats. Yay.
2: And the reason I said this is really international is that all three of us are in a different country today. <laughs> so I'm in Canada. Yola is in, are you in Kansas Yola?
0: I am in Kansas, yes
2: in Kansas, and of course uh, Panos is in uh, in Greece. So really international. Uh, yeah.
0: So Panos, uh, tell us where, where you are exactly and what you're doing right now.
3: Well, right now I'm in Carditsa. In it's a small uh, town in, in Greece. I'm originally from Athens. So I spent half my time in Athens, half my time in Carditsa uh, practically. Uh, I work at the university here, at the small animal clinic, uh, where I teach uh, internal medicine, and I'm also a consultant in uh, internal medicine in private practice. My my main research focus is uh, small animal and especially feline gastroenterology and uh, pancreatic uh, diseases, and that's you know what I enjoy doing most. And that's why we're so excited that you're on the podcast.
0: So uh, I have some history with uh, Greece too. My grandfather used to live in Rhodes for a long, long time. So as a kid, every year we went to Greece and to Rhodes and uh, had a great time. He had a sailing boat there. And uh, so I remember Greece very, very fondly. Uh, okay. It was a different time at that uh, in, 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 in that period. But uh, Greece has this very special place in my heart.
3: All right, I didn't know that, exciting.
2: That's lovely, and I have a a degree, so it's still, still something I I will get to experience, I hope so. Um, So I'm interested, Panos, when you went to veterinary school, did you know then, or did you develop your interest in gastroenterology as a student, or did that come later? Uh,
3: It was during, I think, the final year of my, um, time at the vet school that I realized that I really liked uh, gastroenterology and um, yeah it started from there I guess. Mm-hmm. It has to do with you know people that teach specific uh, t- uh, systems uh, but uh, I liked it very much and uh, it's it all started there I guess. Wow that's
2: great um, and I, I know did you go into clinical practice right after graduation? Um, Because I know you spent a lot of time in the US. So what's the timeline? Right.
3: Well, I did for a couple of years after my graduation. And then uh, after that, I left to go to uh, Texas A&M mainly. I visited a few more vet school in the States, but I stayed uh, for about 10 years at Texas A&M.
2: Yeah.
3: Where I did my training and worked uh, after that at the GI lab at Texas A&M. Right,
2: right. Because I, I think you you visited, um, uh, I saw it like Cornell. Did you spend a little time at Cornell? I visited
3: Cornell briefly. I visited, um, um, what else? I visited uh, Penn, Pennsylvania, uh, the vet school there in, in uh, Philadelphia, and also, um, I spent some time with uh, Mike Lieb at uh, uh, Virginia. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But 10 years at Texas A&M, uh, that means 10 years with the amazing Dr. Jörg Steiner, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Who was a very good friend of mine. So uh, okay. big shout out to Jörg. Uh, uh, so uh, so in, in, in Texas, did you, because obviously they, they have a a keen interest in pancreatic diseases there. Is that where you you got pancreatic fever?
3: (laughs) Yes. I was was lucky at the time because for some reason, uh, when I joined the team there, nobody else was working um, on the pancreas. I mean, most people were working on liver disease or uh, gastrointestinal disease specifically. Um, and uh, I started working on pancreatic disease, which I had a very strong interest anyway, and um, it was very, very good for me, very interesting, I guess, yes.
2: So at at that time, um, you'll have to remind me of the the timeline of things, was the PLI test available when you started at Texas A&M, or were you part of the feline in particular I'm thinking of, or were you part of that?
3: Uh, it. They were working on that at that time. Right. Uh, one of my initial projects was to actually help with uh, setting up the assay. Uh, they had some problems at that moment. Uh, the ELISA was not working properly, so I had part of my initial project was to uh, help set up the assay again and make it work. So it was, yeah, at that time. Um, the the test at that point, were only being offered by Texas A&M um, by the GI lab specifically. So it was uh, way before it's commercially available and uh, more accessible to everybody.
2: Right, right. Well, that was quite a leap forward, I think, you know, getting the PLI and the PLI um, assays commercialized and getting more data on what they do and what they don't do. That's That was quite a leap forward.
3: Absolutely. Very exciting, I think, too. Yeah, it's if, if you think about it, it's, you know, we never really had any tests that uh, were showing what's going on with uh, the pancreas in cats. And, you know, that's why for for decades, everybody thought that cats do not get pancreatic disease. We just had no way of diagnosing these conditions. Uh, so it has been really a very exciting, I think, um, improvement in um, uh, feline medicine, absolutely. So so let's
0: start at the beginning here then. So what pancreatic diseases do cats get?
2: Yes, now that we can test, what do they get?
3: (laughs) Well, you know, we're we're still learning.
2: Yes.
3: So things started again with uh, pancreatitis. So initially we thought they don't get pancreatic disease. Uh, And then we started having some reports of cats being diagnosed with, uh, with pancreatitis. It was mostly initially with necropsy studies uh, because the cats w- would die without being diagnosed with the disease and then uh, pathologists would realize that you know, some cats do uh, die because of pancreatitis. Now, still clinically everybody was missing the diagnosis, it was extremely hard. You know, ultrasound was not that, um, it wasn't available in most places and we had no serum tests to diagnose pancreatitis. So after we realized that pancreatitis in cats does exist and then ultrasound became more and more uh, available and then the PLI was developed and we realized that we can diagnose actually the disease And uh, so things have changed since then. But even at that time, that was about maybe 15, 20 years ago, something like that, uh, even at that time, most people believed that the other common condition, pancreatic condition in dogs, uh, pancreatic insufficiency, uh, was almost non-existent in, uh, in cats. Uh, Lately, during the last decade, we also realized that it's probably not as common as in dogs, but we do see several cases of pancreatic insufficiency in cats as well. So the two main diseases of the exocrine pancreas in cats are exactly the same, Mm -hmm. Uh, like in dogs, uh, pancreatitis and uh, pancreatic insufficiency. Mm -hmm. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, there seems to be a link between these two conditions. So Hmm. most commonly, at least that's what we know so far, and we don't know much, I have to say that. uh, Most commonly, we believe that uh, pancreatic insufficiency is in developmental stage of uh, chronic, severe pancreatitis in in cats. We'll talk about that uh, later as well.
2: But we do see some, I've seen some very some young cats with Absolutely. pancreatic insufficiency
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? so that there must be a different pathway for those cats.
3: It, and again you know the, the truth is we don't know so we have some reports of cats with pancreatic asner atrophy like in dogs um, but the, the truth is we don't really know for how long they need to have yes inflammation to get, um, Epi, so it's very possible that they do have other conditions as well, uh, but again, we don't know. There are so many things we don't know, and so many things that you know we have to learn about this condition in this species, which uh, makes it very interesting, I would say. But it's absolutely true. We see cats that are one year old and they have Epi, yeah. and we have cats that are eighteen years old and they develop. EPI at that point, yes. Absolutely.
2: They're a very big age range, yes.
3: And the same is true for uh, pancreatitis. As you know, You know, it's more common in maybe middle-aged to older cats, but we do see it in cats that are a year old, for example, the age rate is very wide. Yeah. <clears throat>
2: yeah, so if we compare to dogs, the, the, the D species that we don't talk about on our feline podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it, it strikes me that now that we're convincing people that cats do get pancreatic diseases, we have to shift their frame of reference away from the dog to the cat because the cat often looks different with it, with its pancreatic diseases, right? So
3: absolutely.
2: Yeah. So there's cats their- are always
3: different, right? In yeah. of their diseases.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
3: So
0: how do you recognize a cat with pancreatitis or pancreas Mm.
3: insufficiency? Well, let's start with with pancreatitis. We've come to realize that very often you can have a cat that only has anorexia and nothing else for maybe a couple of days and is slightly depressed. These cats may have very, very severe Uh, acute pancreatitis, or an episode of acute pancreatitis. Um, Very commonly, they don't vomit. They don't have diarrhea, They don't show abdominal pain. They don't show anything else, or is so subtle that it's missed by the owners. Uh, But it's recognized now that by far the most common clinical signs in cats with pancreatitis are anorexia or reduced appetite and uh, depression, just those two. Or they have a single episode of vomiting,
2: sure.
3: but it's not, you know, too alerting for the, um, for the owner. So okay. most cats that we see have this type of clinical signs. Now, some cats are a little bit more typical to what we have in mind when we talk about pancreatitis. So they might have several episodes of vomiting or severe depression. Uh, But it really isn't the the typical uh, pancreatitis cat that we see. And the problem is that if we wait uh, to do the testing uh, in cats that only present with vomiting or diarrhea, then we miss the majority of cats with um, pancreatic disease and specifically pancreatitis. Now, things are slightly different with pancreatic insufficiency. Um, And they might even be more confusing. Mm -hmm. So the typical case, the typical cat with pancreatic insufficiency may only have um, weight loss and nothing else. Or sometimes they don't even get loose stools, you know, or they might be, uh, they don't have the typical diarrhea and loose stools that dogs have. Um, now, the problem with uh, EPI that's also true for pancreatitis is that, uh, as you very well know, cats often have many concurrent diseases. <laughs> you can have a cat that has EPI, pancreatic insufficiency, and a small intestinal disease, chronic small intestinal disease, a chronic enteropathy. Now, this cat might be losing weight because they have pancreatic insufficiency but they might also vomit because they have uh, a chronic enteropathy and might might lose weight because they have both chronic enteropathy and epi these cases are very very confusing and you know usually when you diagnose one disease you might stop there
2: <laughs>
3: see that the cat is not responding very well to the treatment and you're wondering why So sometimes it's a real problem that we don't diagnose all the diseases that are present in a cat. Uh, But the main differences between dogs and cats with regards to uh, pancreatic disease is that uh, the clinical signs are more less specific than in dogs. So sometimes we don't even think of gastrointestinal disease uh, when we see a cat with just anorexia and nothing else
2: mm.
0: and, and that's so interesting that you say that because i remember from my schooling days and, and i'm not a internal medicine person i'm totally a surgeon and we'll talk about that part of the pancreas too uh, in a second but uh, but i remember that in in the d word it is so obvious when a d has pancreatic insufficiency because what comes out is so pneumonic or whatever you call it mm. and um And so, but in a cat, that's then not the case. That's really interesting.
3: Absolutely. And you know, one of the other common signs in dogs is that um, they are very, very hungry all the time. So they are losing weight, they have increased appetite, and they have loose stools. But if you have a cat that has pancreatic insufficiency, plus pancreatic inflammation, plus liver inflammation plus a chronic enteropathy, this cat might have EPI and still be anorexic, for example. So it's very, very confusing. It's yeah. very different from what we know in dogs.
2: I think it's a good rule of thumb that if you diagnose one gastrointestinal disease in cats, there's probably others. And you should go absolutely it. Yeah, that's I, I've learned that rule the hard way. Um, and also because as, as, as you've pointed out, cats um, tend to have for a lot of diseases um, non-specific clinical signs. So when when I do lectures, I often joke that cats only have four clinical signs and they use them for every disease. <laughs> so, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, lethargy, decreased appetite. It's like every disease. So there's right. always a diagnostic challenge and never more so than GI disease, I think
3: that's that's absolutely so true and the, the same is true with um, abdominal pain in dogs you know just easier to detect and many cats will not show that they're um, in pain
2: yeah um, yeah I'm, I'm not convinced that they don't have abdominal pain from pancreatitis they just don't show it easily
3: Oh, well, they definitely do have pain absolutely yeah. Yeah. it's impossible that they don't have they just don't show the pain absolutely exactly.
0: Panos, you you talked. This is all exocrine pancreas. If we go to the endocrine pancreas, is there are there links here too? So, do cats get diabetes plus pancreatitis, for
3: instance? Absolutely. Um, in uh, that's another confusing part, you know. Many cats with chronic, you know, we know that chronic pancreatitis is more common in cats than in dogs. So, with chronic inflammation and with chronic destruction of the pancreas, sometimes the problem is limited to the exocrine pancreas, but many times it's extended to the endocrine pancreas. So it's not uncommon at all to have um, a cat with pancreatitis that also develops diabetes mellitus at some point. Do
2: you think it can also go the other way around? Yeah,
3: exactly. So that's that's exactly what I was going to discuss right now. that pancreatitis and diabetes often coexist in cats and we don't always know which disease came first. Right. Uh, so we have many cats that have diabetes and we test them for pancreatitis and they seem to also have pancreatitis and you know there is evidence to suggest that cats that have both diabetes and pancreatitis are more difficult to manage. Yeah. And have get diabetic control in these cats?
2: Yes, so there, I owned one of those cats, so I can I can totally. Okay. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and you know, really, there is evidence to support both that cats with pancreatitis might at some point develop diabetes, but there is evidence to suggest that cats with diabetes might also be prone to develop pancreatitis at some point. So these are two other conditions that often. Uh, coexisting cats. Yeah, we'd love to say that cats
0: are masters in collecting diseases. So yeah. not one. There's very rarely a cat that comes in with one disease. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, they're Absolutely. just looking around and walking around. Okay, what disease can I pick up here? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> let's go shopping and buy diseases. Yes. That's what cats
0: so, do. Uh, so let's switch the, the the discussion a little bit to diagnoses now. So we know that the clinical signs are, are are very confusing. And, and look like other diseases. And then we know also now that there's multiple diseases often uh, playing a part. So if you get a cat that is anorexic with uh, clinical science and you're like, ooh, this might be pancreatitis, you get all excited about it, uh, what kind of test will you do to, to prove what you're thinking is right? Okay. Um,
3: first of all, in my opinion, um, pancreatitis, both in cats and in dogs, it's one of the most difficult conditions to diagnose or rule out. Um, I mean, I've been studying pancreatic disease for many, many years, and I can't even tell you how many times um, I've made a wrong diagnosis.
2: I'm so glad to hear that. (laughs) It's
3: it's extremely, extremely difficult to, to... you know, make sure that first you do have or you don't have pancreatitis. And if you do have pancreatitis, that it's the, really the cause of the clinical signs. Sometimes it gets so confusing that's uh, crazy. So I always have that in mind. It's one of the most difficult diseases to diagnose. Now, uh, I know, we know for sure that the traditional lipase assays and amylase assays uh, for the pancreas are pretty much useless. In, in the past, yeah. We know that, and I don't waste time or money uh, measuring those uh, parameters.
2: And can you just tell us why that is? Because that that question comes up, you know, like younger vets will often say, I was taught this, so I don't look at them, but why? Why can't absolutely,
3: Absolutely, that's a good question. Uh, for a few reasons, uh, first of all, both lipase and amylase are enzymes that are produced not only by the pancreas, but also by other tissues. So we know, for example, that the intestine produces lipases, uh, the liver as well, and many other tissues. So there are several sources that produce uh, lipases, for example.
2: And I think amylase is produced by the kidneys in cats too, is not it? Exactly,
3: exactly, absolutely. Now, that's one part of the problem. The second part of the problem is that the traditional catalytic assays uh, are unable to differentiate the lipases or amylases based on their tissue of origin. Right. So just detect every single lipase or amylase that's in the, uh, in the blood at that time. Right. So that makes them very um, unspecific pancreatitis and they also lower very much their sensitivity as well because of all the background activity of other lipases. Right. So we know that's that's a fact both in in cats and in dogs. Now, um, there are some catalytic assays um, that um, there is evidence that are more specific for pancreatic disease.
2: Do you mean uh, like the, the DGGR lipases? That, exactly, that's one of them.
3: So there are some reports that they have a better performance. Yes. Um, with diagnosing uh, pancreatitis, for example, in cats, there is still a lot of debate. I'm not really convinced. I mean, there is evidence that they're much better, but there is also evidence that. Um, uh, even with this specific substrate, they are not as specific as we uh, would like them to be.
2: Right.
3: Recently, there was a study that was published where um, it was done both in cats and in dogs. So the cats are of interest right now. Uh, so what, um, what we did, that was a study we did with uh, York Steiner and his team at Texas A&M. So um, we administered heparin to cats intravenously. And uh, what heparin does is it releases some of the non-pancreatic lipases. So the lipoprotein lipase and maybe the hepatic lipase. So it increases their activity in the blood. So we gave to the cats uh, heparin and then we measured uh, DGGR lipase and also pancreatic lipase by the SPEC-FPL. Now, what we found that was recently published, I think, maybe it's not out yet, it's accepted in the Journal of Lange Medicine and Surgery, while the uh, pancreatic lipase measured by the SPEC-FPL did not increase significantly, the DGGR lipase significantly increased after administration of heparin, which clearly shows that it detects other lipases as well. It's not that specific for that. So there is still much debate about whether or not uh, the DGGR lipase is specific enough for pancreatic disease. There, is, there are some studies, uh, especially studies by the team of uh, Peter Cook uh, that show that there might be a good correlation with uh, SPEC-FPL and the PLI. Yes. Uh, there is still a lot of debate at, at this point about that. Um, the, the difference of the PLI assay is that it's not an activity assay, it's an immunoassay, right. and it very specifically detects the pancreatic lipase, so only the lipase that's of pancreatic origin. Right. So it's, it represents what's going on in the pancreas, pancreas instead of um, taking into account all the other lipases that are available uh, in the bloodstream. And that's difference. So to uh, get back to your question. um, What I like to do uh, with cats that uh, might have pancreatitis, I usually uh, run a PLI if that's available. And um, I always want to also do an abdominal ultrasound and look at the pancreas with uh, the ultrasound and see what happens. I think the combination of those two modalities is the best approach we have so far. Nothing is 100% sensitive or specific, so we always have to be very careful. Uh, We might have cats that have increased PLI and maybe pancreatitis is not their main problem. We have cats that have pancreatitis and the PLI is normal. So I never... Diagnose or exclude the disease based on a single uh, yes. test? Yeah.
2: I think it's, a, it's important to think about that the PLI, it, it's a spectrum of activity, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's an immunoassay, so it's detecting a spectrum, a range.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So, in, in some mm-hmm. ways, the, the difficulty is where do you put your cutoff? right, to say below this number is normal, above this number is not normal. It's, we have we have made a, a decision on a cutoff point. Correct?
3: Absolutely, yes. Yeah,
2: yeah. so there's will fall on, you know, very close to the cutoff, I presume. Exactly, and, yeah.
3: and always in both uh, PLI assays, there is also a gray zone.
2: Yes, yes. Normal
3: values, we have the values that we think are indicative of pancreatitis, but there is also a gray zone and values in that zone, you know, you can have a cat that's normal or a cat that has pancreatitis. You don't know exactly what happens. So yeah, absolutely. That's uh, something that we see happening in some cats and we don't know exactly what's, uh, what's going on there. So the idea is to retest these cats and also take into consideration uh, the results of other um, test results and imaging studies, absolutely. So, Dr. Panos,
0: this has been great. We're already at time. It's, it's crazy how time goes fast. And 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 you'll be back next week uh, in our uh, uh, continuous podcast because I, I'm really eager to talk about um, other ways of diagnosing still. Uh, and I want to ask you a question about pancreatic biopsies because everybody is always so oh, worried about that. Good um, and so, but we'll do that. That's the cliffhanger for next week. And okay. then we're going to talk about treatment too because very excited to hear there. So Perfect. Dr. do you want to finish up?
2: Did you, did, did you say me? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, you. <laughs> you I should know because you always ask me to finish up I don't know why I'm surprised <laughs> so um so make sure you check out our website at perpodcast.net you can see all of our episodes there you can listen online you can listen in any of your favorite podcast apps and uh, check out all of our great guests and uh and the topics that uh, that we've done
0: And that's great. Uh, And and I just want to thank everybody for uh, being so faithful because we get more than 1,000 downloads uh, for every podcast episode right now. So uh, it's getting more and more popular. And uh, uh, Dr. Panos, thank you for being on. And we'll talk to you next week.
3: Thank you very much.
1: with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options.